We pick it up this afternoon in Matthew 3, starting in verse 7. And the only reason we're starting there is because last week we went to verse 6. Look at how that works. But, well, go ahead and get there. I'll wait. Matthew 3, verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning hand, his winning wing hand is in his, sorry, his winning wing fan is in his hand. That was difficult this morning. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into, into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff of unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and he said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had baptized, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you for the beauty of your word. The simple and yet ridiculously profound truth. I thank you for the blessing of being able to sit here. Strangely enough, in this cool room, to seek your face and your word. And I thank you for the blessing of every minute we're going to get now in it. So please, captivate us in your word. May we have so much fun in your word today. And may we each understand you better, your call in our lives better, your love for us deeper If there are any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let this be the moment of their salvation. For those who are struggling, be their encouragement. For those who are weak, be their strength. For those who are growing, continue to equip and to challenge. And make today a beautiful, rich, transforming day. Color in the black and white and help us to get it. We commit ourselves in this time to you. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen. Come upon me in such a way that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, that you would speak to every one of us individually, bespoke to our own hearts and ears and minds, right at our areas of need, but also corporately as a family. Teach us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be the thing for which you test all things, including not only what I say, but anyone else as well. A voice is now splintered 400 years of prophetic silence. It is the dawn of Daniel 9, the prophecies from the going and the building forth of the holy city to the coming of Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. And there's even a specific day to which he is coming. And we're getting close. 
And after 400 years of hearing no prophets, a voice speaks and his message is simple and straight to the heart. Repent is the word. Metanoecho as we have it in the Greek. And it means in the simplest sense, change your mind. But there's so much more to it. But it's in its simplest sense. It's the same word Jesus will use himself, by the way, in Matthew chapter 14. I'm sorry, Matthew 4. It's the same word that Peter will use in Acts 2, 3, and 8. And Paul will use in Acts 17 and 26. It's repent. It's his message. Because you cannot receive God running the direction you're running. And the people were starving for this. And this man, effervescent in his convictions and dichotomous in both food and fashion, stands up in the middle of nowhere in robber's den, in Banshee's alley, and everybody is flocking to him now. But in the midst of all of this murky pool of, well, of society's full frontal assault on absolutes, marketed as freedom, marketed as tolerance, God's people were just, unfortunately, equally as ambivalent and ambiguous. They couldn't even agree on what would define them. You see, the Sadducees had come to be when Israel, after taken captive in 586 B.C., had returned back. Prior to that point, the rock star, the leader, the, the queen, if you will, or king of Israel, was the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. There were kings before, but since David and Solomon, there has never been such a one that one we would really gladly stand behind. There were a few in their brief moments of rising up and repairing, if you will, but the root itself was still rotten. It had been filled with avarice and greed and all the things of men, just like perhaps what you see today in many places. And I look at someone like John the Baptist and I realize that the political system of the day, religious as it was, was still an ardent opposition to him. You see, the, during the time when Israel had come back, they were trying to figure out, well, who do we make? Who do we make as sort of our figurehead now? We can't just elect a king. And they would chase their lineages back to a, the high priest during the days of David and Solomon. His name was Zadok. So the family of Zadok would be the Zadokites, or as we might say, the Sadducees. It's where the term comes from. So understand, the people who actually became Sadducees Sadducees, were, in essence, if you will, people who simply had the name Smith, Jones, or might we say Windsor would be the idea. And because they sort of cashed in on a lineage, there was no requirement in character or in qualification or commitment, just in surname. And all of a sudden, coming back to Israel, they were, they were given the biggest and most profound chunk of land, the Temple Mount. Oh, that was theirs now. And because of that, because they were rich, and because land was their thing, it became, in essence, the point of what it meant to be Jewish. If you were to say, what's the emblem of Judaism for them, it would be the Temple. Seven stories tall by this point, aggrandized. It was roughly 4,400 square feet, and it had been aggrandized to 1.2 million square feet by Herod the Great. That was a big remodel. He actually leveled the rest of the uh, part of the mountain, so it was one big flat area. You can still see that today, by the way, called the Temple Mount. And so for these Sadducees, understand, they didn't believe in anything they couldn't see because money was king. And so understand, they didn't believe in angels or the resurrection or anything spiritual. Strangely enough, they were the high priests. Well, needless to say, like any form of movement like that, there will be a counter-movement. But unfortunately, the pendulum never stops in the middle. So on one side, you have the the Sadducees, who were really big about land, and it's primarily about the temple. And then the counter-movement were a group that sought to be parash, or if you will, separate. So they were the separatites, or if you will, the parashim, or we say, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, if it was stopped in the middle, we'd say, you know what, we're going back to the Bible now. We're going to go back to what Scripture says which is always where we should be. But when you swing beyond that, well, what do you have left? You have traditions. So the Pharisees became known for their adherence to every law, tradition, and every tag on or bolt on to the law. 29 volumes on what it meant to to keep the Sabbath. To this day, there's still debates, by the way. Uh, When we were in Israel, I don't know, this was about seven or eight years ago, the debate at the time, the chief 
Ravi of, of Jerusalem was debating on whether or not it was proper to pick your nose. True story. On the Sabbath, because that's like harvesting was the concept. And I kid you not. Now, understand, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath, because if you spit on the Sabbath and that water landed on soil, you were in essence farming, because you were watering something. So you couldn't do that. I mean, it, was, it got that crazy. Now, understand, you could still get that today on Shabbat, on, on Sabbath, where a lot of those laws are still adhered to. People don't even know why. As a matter of fact, there's the whole idea that you can't push a button. So we have this tradition when we go to Israel, for instance, we race on elevators. We pick, I'll pick the Gentile elevator. And you pick the, and so I go, you, got, you take that one, I'll take this one. Well, because on a Sabbath, Shabbat, you can't push a button. That means if you're on the 17th floor, that, uh, that lift is opening on every floor on the way up. That's how you don't push a button. I, on the other hand, I'll take the Gentile elevator, lift, and I'll press 17, and I'll meet you there in an hour. And the whole point of it is, and so you have on one side, you have these people that are like the, the temple is everything. And on the other side, the traditions are everything. And unfortunately, neither one of those is healthy. But you can find the same today. You can find those that what we're known for is our building. What we're known for is our stuff. And you can find another that says what we're kind of known for are our traditions. They've, they've become our counterculture and don't muck with that. But it's somewhere in between, there's somebody getting into the Word. And understand, the Word of God incarnate, living and walking among us, is what John is telling us to prepare for. And so when this voice pierces and penetrates the silence after 400 years, this is the political condition. And the voice is saying a very simple thing again. Repent. That's His Word. And over here, they're like, repent from what? I own all the land. I've got boardwalk and park place. Why in the world should I be concerned? And on the other side, we're so busy keeping our traditions, we don't have time to listen. And unfortunately, that's the environment. But the people in between are so fed up. They're so tired of trying to figure out, this is what religion is? A bunch of rich people keeping their kingdoms? Or a bunch of traditions that we have to follow? Where is God in all of that? And it's like, how much do I have to own? Or how much do I have to invest? How much do I have to pay? Or how many of these things do I have to keep? And how many of these things that don't even make sense to me? How do I have to do all of this before I finally find God? And God sounds so complicated, doesn't He? You can understand how angry God would be. And yet there's a voice in between all this that's saying, stop, change your mind. When the church is so busy trying at this point, as we see, or in this case, they're both of these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are creeping on this tightrope of trying to keep Rome happy while looking holy at the same time. You see, they don't want to get the world angry at them. They don't want to appear to be at enmity with the system of the world, which John makes clear in 1 John, that is under the influence of the enemy. And yet James says, if you want to make yourself a friend of the world, stop calling yourself a friend of God because you can't be both. And there have been, throughout seasons, companies so at enmity with each other, you can't possibly be a friend of both. Those are harsh words, but they're honest. And the voice says, repent. And that's simple. So while the Pharisees are looping their tune of tradition and the Sadducees are touting their, their banners of building in their temples, God has attempted to break through all of that. And though the people do not want to rattle Rome, God is going to reach the heart. And the heart, by the way, is a very simple place to get to. We've made it complicated. In our first six verses, what we find is a guy lit up with conviction, is willing to stand up in a place where people wouldn't normally go with a very simple message. He has no flannel graphs. He has no great technological display. He's got no great posse. He has no killer worship team. He's got no amazing building. He's in the middle of nowhere by himself. And his message is simple. There's not six experts, doctors, and so-and-so. His message is about the human heart and you need to change your mind to get there. Understand that if you have such a conviction, the way that it will be tested will be twofold, by friend and foe. By friend who you befriend in that conviction and by foe who you're willing to stand against to keep it. No matter what conviction you have, you'll, ha you'll make both. The moment you take a stand, you're going to have enemies. It doesn't matter where you stand. 
you'll have enemies. What's interesting is how clearly John understood his enemies before he even started. As we prepare to jump into this, I'd like you to consider this. The society of Rome had its causes. It had its things that were defined as kindnesses, good works, decent deeds. And God's people had happily succumbed to those things because those things were inoffensive to Rome. And in essence, let me say it this way, if you will. We were willing to march and merge with the culture's causes and the socially supported kindnesses so that we could be viewed as nice people. Not eternal people, not nutters, not people of great conviction, just nice people. So at best, we would be looked at as nice and harmless. No threat to help or hell itself. But that's not John's message. John's message is going to offend from the beginning. And in verse 7 he says, as he sees now many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, rife with their own kingdoms, with a lot to lose in this world, but nothing attached to eternity. Did you notice, by the way, in verse 7, it says many of the scribes are the Pharisees and Sadducees? Did you see that? If John the Baptist's view of success was gathering an awful lot of people, he certainly wouldn't have sought to offend them here, would he? His first words to them is, you family of snakes. Nowhere in Scripture would that be a compliment, unless you're talking to Satan. This word, by the way, for what it's worth, for serpents, or here, vipers, echta, is the same word that we'll find Jesus speak, by the way, in Matthew 23, when he speaks to these same religious leaders. It's the same word that's used in Acts 28, when Paul is throwing sticks in a fire and a viper attaches to his hand. The same word. John knew from the very beginning of this who was going to stand against him. And interesting, he didn't speak this way of the Gentiles. But he sure did for a group of people that were set on bolstering themselves and not seeking God. Did you notice also in verse 7 that God makes clear it was his baptism? It didn't just say that they came to a baptism or they came to the one John was at, but it says that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Have you considered what that means? Who warned you? In other words, if, if you put this together, and, and again, we'll get a little quicker on this to get through every verse, but please hear me in this. John is seeing people come for the purpose of being baptized. They're repenting from the life that they once had. They're confessing the sins that they had once lived in and now saying, I'm choosing to live a different life. And this is my coming out party. This is my way of letting everybody know the new person that I am. And all of a sudden, these people come. But John chapter 1 makes really clear they did not come for that purpose. In John chapter 1, what it tells us is that the scribes and Pharisees had sent these people to come and ask John, who in the world does he think he is? In other words, just because the hospital was getting packed full of people doesn't mean everyone went there to get well. Some came to check the doctor's credentials. And so they were coming and they're asking, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John says, no, 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 no. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight a pathway for the Lord. And if you're looking for the Lord, that would have rung out in my heart. But instead, they're like, hey, we have to give an answer to those who sent us. Which means the information they were seeking wasn't for themselves. They were on a task. And you could be here that same way. You could have a marriage that's in ruins. You could be trying to fight a warrant. You could feel like things are really rough. And somehow you feel like you could hedge your bets. If you come here and do God a little favor by visiting his house for a little bit, maybe he'll be kind and pay you back for it. But unfortunately, John has a problem with the people who are seeing this as a means to an end that doesn't involve God. Who warned you? In other words, John's saying, you bunch of snakes, who invited you to this? How do you think you'd feel if you were one of those guys? 
What person has the chutzpah to say such a thing to someone who's clearly going to stand against? I mean, even just somebody who's peddling something you know is completely opposite of what you stand for. Are you, are you, are we, and I'm just saying, look, we need to be a big jerk to them. What I'm saying is, are we willing to make clear, though, that we are clearly on opposite sides of this, of this line? Because if we're not willing to make that clear, and we're just busy befriending people, they won't know the need for rescue. And that becomes the problem. When you tell them about Jesus died to save you, and they're like, well, then that's irrelevant to me. I don't need saving. And then you try to drop the bomb on them that, you, that they do, and they look at you like you've betrayed them because you've been a friend for five years. You've never actually said that before. They think something happened to you in the last three days that made you mental. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And here you are with your little pocketbook, your iPad, and you're going to type in a little note. Maybe video a moment for John, bring it back to show it to the leaders. As they're kind of talking, hey, go and find out what that thing's about, okay? And they have to come back and go, I don't know, the guy was kind of rude to us. It wasn't like, hey, everybody in the water, man, it's cool. Let's all get wet and sing Kumbaya, bro. This is a moment where he's like, look, it, repentance is a very serious thing. And notice what he says next. See, remember, this idea of repentance is to change your mind. In verse 8, by the way, he doesn't just say you're permanently disqualified. Notice the issue is fleeing wrath, not just feeling wrong. And in verse 8, he says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this, by the way, I've got to be, I've got to be honest. I need to go and search this out a little bit because I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Isn't repentance enough just to say, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this again? And as I'm walking this off, I had this beautiful opportunity, and I do this a lot. I go for these long walks. I'm like, Lord, in my own areas that I'm seeking to be repentant of, what would the works of, or the fruit of repentance look like? Because clearly here there's something more than that. And the Lord started to show me something. And, and, and again, don't just believe me, but take this and, and take a look at it yourself. And the thing he showed me is there is a huge difference between relenting and repenting. And the question is, are you seeking to relent? Are you seeking to repent? Twice, for instance, in Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and in Jonah chapter 3, God relents. Now understand, in the first case, David had done a census. God is responding. There is, a, there is a plague, if you will, that's kind of coming across the people. And in a moment, God stops it. He stops it. In Jonah's case, God was going to destroy Nineveh had the people not repented. Had they not repented. But because they repented, God relented. In other words, he stopped. Relenting in a simple sense means stop. But that's not turning around. And unfortunately, a lot of times what we could do is we could find ourselves in a situation where we're going, God, I'm repenting. And God's going, no, you're not. You're relenting. In other words, you're saying, I'm not going to do that again. And then I start thinking, well, what's the fruits of repentance? And he says, notice it's plural. It isn't just like, hey, show the fruit of repentance, but the fruits. So then I said, well, where in Scripture have I seen something that needed to completely change? And I can't help but go right to the book of Corinthians. See, in the book of Corinthians, by the way, and it's an easy book, by the way, 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church he actually planted. The first six chapters, Paul is, in essence, being a doctor giving a diagnosis of a very sick church. And what he says is, you guys are suing each other. You guys are fractured. You guys are like, I'm a Paul, I'm a Kephas. You know, that's like kind of like what we're known for, our little things that divide us as Christians, not known for Jesus. <clears throat> and he says, and there's this guy who's sleeping with his mom. He goes, and you guys are proud of it. Now you can decide for yourself. It says his father's wife. That's a simple math. However you do it, it's wrong. And it wasn't just that the guy was doing this. It was that the church was so proud of their tolerance. He says, this is something that even the unsaved world doesn't do. And you're like, look at how, look at how, how, how tolerant we are. Can I say something? Please hear me again. Scripture tells us that we are to be tolerant and intolerant. Tolerant to personality, intolerant to sin. The world flips that around. 
It says you could be tolerant. You need to be tolerant to everyone's sin. You could be intolerant to people's personalities. I hate that person because they're loud or that person because they're quiet or that person. And it's like, you know, and all of a sudden what you realize is scripturally we're starting to follow the culture and go, you know, we're just going to tolerate sin. Can I just say before you came in here today, I prayed for you. And I prayed that any person who came in here would be comfortable but not in their sin. The same way that if you came into a doctor's office with cancer, I pray that you would have come into the doctor's office to get it out of you. And I want God to remove every bit of what's killing us inside. So please hear me in this. When Paul actually addresses this issue in the first six chapters, he says, it's actually a very simple diagnosis. You're carnal. All of these things head to the same place. And that is, you were supposed to be looking more like Jesus. And instead, what you've decided is that you are going to actually look like the world. Which is odd, because the moment you've accepted Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1.13, now again, don't just believe me, search it on your own. But the moment you said yes, God placed inside of you His Holy Spirit, starting to make you look very, very different. Which means, if you try to look like the world from the moment you said yes to Jesus, you're fighting God's Holy Spirit inside you doing the opposite. He's making you unique, transforming you and making you a new person. And you're like, no, 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 I want to look like the world. And the Holy Spirit's going, I'm going to make you look like God. And you can't look like God and look like the world at the same time. So keep that in mind for a second here. And Paul says, you know what? You need to repent. You need to deal with this guy. You need to become intolerant to sin. You need to humble yourselves and stop being fractured and say, I'm cooler than you because I listen to this teacher, I go to this church or whatever. You've got to stop that stuff. And you need to hand your life over to Jesus where it belongs and let him reinvent you. And then from chapter 7 on to the end of the, of the letter, he goes, now concerning the things you write to me. So there were like a bunch of questions for Pastor Paul. And from chapter 7 through the rest of 1 Corinthians, he's just answering questions. But when we get to 2 Corinthians, what becomes clear is what happened. Do you know what Paul actually said about this guy? Kick him out of the church. Does that sound harsh? The purpose was not just so that that guy could go die. He said, let him know how serious what he's doing is. So that, but let him know the moment he's willing to give this up, he's welcome back. You know the interesting thing? It worked. By 2 Corinthians, the guy has come back. And now he's giving structure to the church and he's saying, now listen, there are three things I want you to concern yourself with now. One, I want you to forgive them. Second, I want you to reaffirm your love for them lest they be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. I want you to reaffirm your love, forgive, and I want you to comfort them. Reach out to them. Let's face it, someone does something really stupid in the church and they don't want to come here. And, they, and if, they, if they come back and they're scared to death that everybody knows. Like somehow God sent us a, a, a newspaper article, you know, with their life in it, right? And so they're going to they think that everyone, and so you reach out and you say, I just, I'm just glad you're here. I love you. Welcome home. Don't they need that? Don't we need that? But interesting, when he speaks about this area of repentance, and if you can, if you're in Matthew, go to the right. <clears throat> it'll be Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And then it'll be Galatians and Ephesians. Philippians, right in before those three are Romans and first and second Corinthians. And I want you to go to Second Corinthians chapter seven for a moment. What became really clear is the letter that Paul sent to them tweaked them and made them a little it made them very uncomfortable. <coughs> Did you get there? Sweet. Hey, if you're still going, go. That's cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Pick it up at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. There's our word. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he tells us that there are two kinds of sorrow. Please know this. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now before we move forward, and keep your finger there for just a second. Somebody being sorry isn't enough, and this is why. Because there's two different kinds of sorrow. There's a selfish sorrow and a godly sorrow. Hey, let's face it. You did something really stupid. You got drunk 
and you ran over a child. You killed the child. How could you not be sorry? And now the police want you. You know you're going to do time. You're going to have to stand before court. All your friends are going to become aware of this. Yeah, you're sorry. The question is, what are you going to do with it? If you take that sorrow upon yourself, you'll want to die. He says, there is a worldly sorrow, and it produces death. We see it happen all over the place here. As a matter of fact, I'm told that every, uh, every hour, there are two attempted suicides in London alone. Every hour on average. There's clearly sorrow. On the other side of it, there's a godly sorrow. And the godly sorrow leads you to change your mind, man. I'm going to do more than just stop this. I need to reinvent my life away from this. Here's the difference. I'm going to do more than just stop this. I'm going to reinvent my life away from this. And notice what Paul says then from that point on. These are then the fruits that he was convinced that they were. Notice it says in verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Remember what a godly sorrow produces? Repentance. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. And what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He's like, when we really seek to say, you know what, God, I want to hand you my life. I don't want to just stop doing bad things. I want to just stop doing drugs and, and just stop going out and clubbing and all that stuff. I'm going to ask God, I need you to reinvent a new life away from that. And this becomes the problem. Because if all we think we're known for as Christians is not doing what we used to, then we'll look back and think that's where the fun was. But my God is not a God of knots. He's a God of instead of. And that's the point here. Is that what He wants is He wants to exchange your death for life. The things that destroy you for things that build you up. But we sometimes get addicted to the very things that destroy us. And there's these, look at How bad does your life have to get before you're really willing to say, God, I'm going to do more than relent. I want you to reinvent an entire world away from this thing. You know, it's a guy and he's addicted to alcohol, but he said he's going to stop drinking, but he still works as a bartender. Does that sound weird to you? Because it does to me. You say, but I haven't, I'm not drinking. I've kicked this. I haven't been near it for years. We've just lost two dear friends. One from a murder and one from an overdose. Both drug related. From guys that were clean for years but they got confident that their strength was in them. And you know what happens when you get confident your strength is in you? You stop building that world so far away from the thing. He goes, you know what it really looks like? Paul says, you know how I could really tell? I saw fruit of this repentance. And what I saw was not just that you were angry, but you were indignant. Do you know what it means to be indignant? You're fed up. And you were, wanted to clear yourself. And you had this idea of being like an avenger, man. I'm going to like, oh, avenge this. I'm going to not avenge people, but avenge the sin. And the idea of it is, I don't want to just hate the consequences. I want to hate the sin so bad. I want it to make me nauseous. That I don't even want anything that hints of it in my life. And the reason that John is saying this isn't because he's like, you're all a bunch of miserable jerks. Stop doing bad stuff. What John is saying is the Lord is coming and what he wants is an open heart and this deceitfulness of sin is so going to harden your heart that the Lord's going to knock and you're going to have so much to get through to decide whether or not you want to answer that versus leaving the door open because you know he's coming. And he looks at a group of people and when he realizes that the group of people he's addressing are the group of people that will actually sit down with you and say, John's a little overboard. You know, I mean, I know he means well, but don't you think he's a little extreme? Do you have friends like that? Well, you know that when somebody gives you solid and tight counsel, what you do is you get like, yeah, you know what? Inside, that's right. That's, I mean, that's not just clean, that's pure. There's a difference. 
And then someone else goes, yeah, but man, don't you think that's a little extreme? Don't you think it's a little crazy? It's like it's overboard. Could you OD on Jesus? I don't know, man. People, you're going to lose friends for that. Hey, if you're going to be full on for Jesus and they don't stick around, they're not friends. Let's just be honest. And John is looking at these people and going, snakes! That's what you are. And he has no problem making it clear. And the reason he's like, you guys have no place here because these people are escaping you. Telling them that they're cool where they're at when they're not. And you know, no matter what your sin is, if you want to chase after it, you can find a website that will tell you it's okay. You know that now. But it doesn't make it right. Scripture says, may all men be a liar, but God be true. God's not going to retake a vote on something or ever take a vote on something. He knows what's right. It isn't like he looks and goes, oh, well, culturally now things are a little different than what? Corinth? Than Rome? He's not changing his mind because the condition of man will always be the same. And understand, half the story is this. The good news is we won't end there. But I'd like you to consider this as we round it to get to the last portion of this. Is that he looks and he says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And understand what John did here, and hear me on this, is he got these religious leaders to doubt their salvation. Did you notice that? He goes, don't you dare think for a second. Don't you, don't you dare think to say. Did you notice that, by the way, is the next thing he says? Verse 9, look at it with me. Back now in Matthew. Do not think to say. Why is this so important? What's John's message in a word? Repent. Do you remember what repent means? Change your mind. From what? Don't think to say this. We're cool, man. We're children of Abraham. We're the chosen frozen. God picked us. I'm solid. We're cool. You know, when somebody asks me, and perhaps you get this too, do you believe if you're once saved, you're always saved? Do you believe in eternal security? You know, questions like that. The, the, the issue, I, I, like, I always like to ask, why do you ask? Are you planning on doing some kind of sin that if you think if you're not eternally secure, that you might not do it? Well, then I think you should doubt it. I'm eternally secure. I have no intent. But the reason that I'm secure is because I'm held by a God who loves me. But if we're going to live a life that's so contrary to him and numb ourselves to things and think that we're just going to make our lives somewhere right next to the fire, and that's cool, maybe we need to take a second look. Interesting, because the place, according to John, is a place called Beth Abara. The, the, the name literally means the place of overflow or the place of overflowing. It's the place where the, the Jordan would overflow its, its, its boundaries during the harvest time, or actually during the springtime when the rains would come. Why is that important? Because, well, there was a place just like that all the way back in Joshua. And God made really clear that where Joshua crossed the Jordan was the place where the Jordan overflows its banks during the springtime. And why is that important? Because while they were there, God parted the, the Jordan River and 12 guys grabbed 12 stones. Some of you are familiar with this. This is from Joshua 6. The 12 guys, or 5 and 6, they grabbed, they grabbed 12 stones and they picked them up and they put them beside the Jordan on one side. Why is that important? Because if that is where John is speaking, and he says, don't you think to say to yourselves, to yourselves, you personally, and then among yourselves, isn't that how that plays out? At first I try to convince myself it's not really sin, and then I gather other people that will agree with me. He goes, don't you think to say to yourselves that we've, we've got, we're have children of Abraham. Because God could take, and notice it says these stones, like they're specific ones. And I just wonder if those stones were the ones that were carried out of the Jordan. I mean, when, jo when Joshua writes, he says, and they're there to this day, the great thing about stones is they tend not to change much through time. It's not like, hey, we had this really cool plant. It's probably not going to be there 2,000 years or 1,400 years later. But stones, they tend not to change that much. Well, just the same, 
Don't think to say to this. Don't think the moment that what you're banking on is your heritage. Or don't you know, we're Westerners and God saves all Westerners. And don't you know, you know, my dad was a pastor. Or my mom was like, God is not into group reservations. That's why he calls his sheep by name. And when he calls you by name, he's got full inventory of you. And we need to actually let God reinvent us as far away from where we've come from as possible. And with that then, Needless to say, the religious leaders, I would imagine, are a little bit rough on this. And he says this as we segue then into Jesus stepping into the water. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. After he gets them to doubt their security without Jesus, then he shows them their urgency. Did you notice that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees? It's not like, well, the axe is on its way to the trees. It's like it's right there. Now is the time to deal with this. This is therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Did you see the two steps there? Cut down, thrown into the fire. Now, notice it doesn't just say every tree that doesn't bear fruit. The issue wasn't that it wasn't bearing fruit. It's that it wasn't bearing good fruit. Jesus will actually say a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. It's a simple thing. The root produces the fruit. And we could be busy decorating the outside, but the issue is where's the root? And can I say it this way simply? The difference between Jesus and this world is the world deals with symptoms. God goes to the cause and therefore the cure. So it's like, well, why don't we just inject sugar into the fruit? Why don't you actually just change it at the roots so that it'll bear it on its own? And, you know, we have people that we've, we've dealt with that have been doped up and tripped up and tricked out and all kinds of other things from symptoms, but the cause never gets addressed. And the moment that they take it to the Lord, it's amazing often what radical change takes place because the whole tree changes. So let me ask you something. In verse 10, is fire a thing you want to be in or not be in? You tell me. What's thrown in the fire in verse 10? Bad fruit trees? I'm just trying to help you out here because nobody wants to say anything because you're afraid of being wrong, but it's right there in the text. I mean, I'm letting you cheat. It's right there in the Scripture. According to verse 10, do you want to be thrown in the fire? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Just checking if you're there. Look at verse 12, and I'll get back to verse 10 or verse 11. His winnowing fan. Do you know what a winnowing fan is? Okay. Here's the idea. In those days, when you harvested wheat... You reached down like this, and you had this sickle in your hand, and you'd go like that. And you had to be careful so you didn't cut off your leg. It's an occupational hazard. And as you cut it off like this, you would bind it up in a sheave, and then what you had is a big bundle of tall pieces of wheat. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. Thank you. And then you would take those things, you'd throw them on a cart, and you'd usually go to a high place that's flat, some form of mesa. Because you know why? You know, what's, you know what comes usually uh, in abundance in high mesas? Wind. And so what you would do then is you would take something heavy, a sledge, usually with pieces of rock and bone and so forth, on the bottom of this thing, and you'd have an ox walk around and you would ride this thing on top of it because what they would do is it would break off the parts you eat from the straw. The straw is called chaff. And usually unless you're making hats or you're trying to look like a hillbilly and stick a piece in your teeth, it doesn't serve a lot of purpose. It's good for fire. It's good for starting a fire. It doesn't last long. So what would happen is... After you would have this, you would have this stuff broke up, but how do you get to the parts you want to eat? The good, part, the good news is that's the heavy part. I love how God invented this. So you took a thing much like a pitchfork, and you just take it down, and you'd throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the, ultimately, sooner or later, what's left is the stuff you eat. Are you following me so far? But what if you're doing it in, on those rare occasions it's not a windy day? You have a big old fan. It's basically a big piece of something usually made out of some form of reeds that a guy kind of stands and goes like this with. And when you throw it up, it's basically artificial wind. And the owner of the threshing floor is there to clean his threshing floor because it is polluted with too much chaff. Stuff that's not supposed to be there. So what's going to happen according to this verse? Notice what it says in verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he's going to blow this thing up, baby. He's going to clean the floor with him. And that which is good, his wheat 
from his threshing floor, from his hand, with his fan, are going to be then gathered into the barn. But the chaff, what's going to happen to the chaff? It's going to be burned. Is verse 12 a, a happy verse? Do you want to be in the fire in verse 12? No. Verse 10, you want to be in the fire? Verse 12, you want to be in the fire. So why would we think verse 11, we'd want to be in the fire? Verse 11 says that though I baptize with water, there's one who's coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do you see that? Some people try to put that together. They'll say he wants to, he will baptize with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. The verse beforehand, fire not so good. The verse next to it, fire not so good. Do you realize that John's message from the beginning is there's two sides to it. He had the, the, the rough, you know, animal skin, the, the, the like, kind of like sackcloth on, but a leather belt. He had locusts, but he had wild honey. And his message was repent because there's wrath to come. There's both sides to it. And he says, listen, my baptism's optional, but you're going to get baptized. And when he comes, sooner or later, you're going to get baptized. But you do have a choice of this, smoking or non-smoking. That's what he's saying. He says, on one side of it, you could be baptized with God's spirit. But on the other side of it, you could be baptized with God's fire. The question is, which one do you want? And people go, oh, and we sing songs. Set me on fire. Could you imagine how strange that sounds in a third world country? You're getting somebody to translate and going, I just want you to know, God wants you to be on fire. And I would think as a translator, I'd be like, do I really want to say that to them? God wants to burn you. And again, I'm not trying to be mean about it, because if what we usually draw that from, to be honest, is the Corinthian letters where he says that when the foundation of Christ is laid, you have different building materials you can choose from. On one side, you could choose gold, silver, or precious stones, but on the other side, hay, wood, and stubble. Isn't hay, chaff? And he says, you know what's going to be really proven? It's going to be proven by fire. Because if what you're building is with these things, precious metals, they don't fear the fire because it purifies them. But on this side, when the fire comes, nothing's left. So which one do you want to build with? But this is easier. This is quicker. And it dies quicker too. On the other side of it, the pure metal of our faith, when thrown in the fire, only proves genuine and results in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. And here's the point of it. When John is saying this, he's going, look at you guys. Now, again, you still have the religious leaders before him, and he's going, listen, you want to flee from the wrath to come, you need to choose sides now. But I want to warn you, you might choose a side that's going to alienate everyone that you know. Are you still cool with it? Because you're going to have to do that. And while he's saying this, someone is stepping into the water. The one he's been speaking of. Interesting as we bring this around. Look at what it says here now. So he says in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized with him. Or by him. But John tried to prevent him. Do you see that in verse 14? John tried to prevent him. Now, initially, if we kind of read this, our initial thought might be, well, that John just recognized him as the Messiah. And he went, whoa, 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 I'm just the baptizer, man. You're like the Messiah. I, why would I baptize you, right? But here's the problem. When you get to the Gospel of John, his testimony is this. And this is John chapter 1, verse 33. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, that's God, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Did you know it's just the Holy Spirit there? No. I have seen and testified this is the Son of God. And the reason I say that is, when God sent John to start this ministry of baptism, what he said is, you're going to go prepare people for the coming one. But when you prepare for the coming one, here's your sign. You're going to baptize one guy that's going to be different from everyone else. Not because he's six feet tall or eight feet tall. Not because he glows in the dark. Not because he has a gold plate above his head. Not because he looks like a surfer. Not because he's got a perfect body. The way you're going to identify him is actually going to be rather strange. The Holy Spirit's going to come in the bodily form. Luke makes clear bodily form. Like a dove. And it's going to, what does it mean to light on someone? Do you know what that means? It just means sit. That's all it means. Now, I don't know about you, but we've been doing baptisms for 25 years. We always go to the sea, and we're, by the way, planning on doing another one probably within another two months. Down to Brighton we go for the day, braving the weather, preaching Jesus to anyone who will listen, watching people be freaked out by the waves, because they always get bigger once we go into the water. 
Everybody's freezing. And then once we're done, we all go out for gelato. Because what else would you do after you've been freezing for three hours? But in all of my years of baptizing, I've never once baptized a person and watched any bird just fly once they've come out of the water and just sit on them anywhere. That's weird. Now, God made that clear to John. You won't miss him. This is what's going to happen. Now, we don't read, by the way, that God ever told John that a voice is ever going to come from heaven to, to, to actually back this up, though that's clearly happening here. And the reason I say that is when John, who, by the way, happens to be cousins with Jesus, John is actually on earth six months older. We know that from the Gospel of Luke. Because, well, if they went to full term, John's mother, Elizabeth, gets pregnant, and then six months later, Mary gets pregnant. But that's worth. So, with that in mind, but John will say he was before me because clearly Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. There's our point. So John has some form of relationship with Jesus as a family member, but he doesn't recognize him as the Messiah. I mean, would it be weird for you, even if your cousin appeared perfect in every way, you still wouldn't think he was the Messiah. You wouldn't go, oh my, what? Really? And I think for me, I'd probably pinch myself a couple times and rub my eyes and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the dove I'm looking for? So God's going to clear all doubt, you would think, with what he says. And the beautiful part about that is, it wasn't just that Jesus was that in, in profile, he was that in personality. John recognized that in Jesus' lifestyle, it was still, though John was sold out, though John was completely given over, still he looked at Jesus and saw him as more perfect in his behavior, in his attitude. I wonder what they would have been like as teens. Looking at John's personality, chances are someone roughed him the wrong way. He probably went at him fist first. And imagine Jesus going, you need to forgive them. He's like, oh man, that cousin of mine. And maybe you, may made, maybe you would have made fun of him before. I don't know, maybe you didn't. But now all of a sudden you look and go, oh my goodness, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. John, this fulfills righteousness. Now what makes Jesus different? Jesus is different in two different ways, by the way, in this. Because the inevitable question is, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Everybody else was baptized. Do you remember what everyone else did while they were being baptized? They, they confessed their sins. But we don't read Jesus doing that because he was tempted in every way yet without sin. So what did Jesus have to repent of if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance? If he had no sin? Can I say in the simplest sense? Obscurity. Jesus had just lived years anonymously. People didn't know who he was. He just was an ordinary Nazarene. But now Jesus is coming out and he's publicly declaring his ministry. There's nothing to repent of that's evil. The only thing he has to say is, you know what, now is the time to leave the world behind of the kind of quiet, safe life and step forward into my Father's role like he called me to. Can I say there'll be a day for you to do that? I don't mean that we have to get in the water for that. My prayer is your day is today for that. Or like, you know what? It's enough to say I'm just going to take God and just kind of have a comfortable life now and die and go to heaven. But there comes a day where you realize I'm going to leave that obscure life for a life of watching God change people. A life to be used. And can I just say there's nothing like that adventure. Yeah, you'll make enemies. We'll get over it. You've already had them. Might as well have the right one. But the idea of following God to wherever he goes, to the leper and to the dead guy and to the, to the girl that's only sleeping, but she's really dead, but she'll be, she won't be for wrong. You know, I mean, the stories you'll be able to tell because you were there. To say like John at the beginning of First John, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon in our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John's like, I touched God. Do you know what that was like? I mean, I watched him. I got to this point where I was like, storm, we're going to die. And then Jesus stops the storm. And I'm like, who is this? And then we get to the other side of the, of, the, of the sea. And then there's like this possessed guy. And he's the one who gives the answer. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And then Jesus shows that he has power over all the demons. Man, you should have seen that. 
man, you should have seen when a guy comes and Luke says, man, he's covered in leprosy. He is like, he may not have feet or arms. And he's like, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And everybody stays three meters, five meters away from such a man. And Jesus reaches over and he touches him before he even says anything. Because he says more with his hand than he ever did with his mouth. And then he says, I'm willing. Man, if you could see. And then to blink and then see this guy. Whoa, wasn't this guy just a leper a moment ago? And see the guy born blind, maybe even with no eyes at all. And for Jesus to, to watch this guy become just made perfect and well. Oh, let's, and I, well, he's going to need help. We need to get him to the pool. I'll take you to the pool because I know something cool is going to come from that. And then we come out and the guy can see. Go back even farther than that. I mean, we were at a wedding and Jesus says, go fill those, you know, those wash basins with water and then go give some to the guy that's looking for wine. You're like, what? I get to see that. And it says the servants knew. They were the only ones. Or to see a kid going, I, I just got five loaves and two fish. And then you look out and there's 5,000 men and their families. And you think, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with this? Can you imagine the stories you'd be able to tell for the rest of your life or not tell because you actually decided not to go? And somebody else tells you the stories of the people that we get to kneel with down somewhere in Camden and watch them give their life to Jesus or watch somebody that's coming on, on heavy delirium tremors, DTs, because they're coming off the alcohol and then watching God deliver them right there as you're praying for them and watching God deliver. I mean, watching God change a girl that was maybe nine years old that was dying of gangrene and had it all up and down her leg and watch God transform her within a night or a girl that's coming off of heroin and should be dead but isn't now and now runs a halfway house in Northern California. What are your stories going to be? But it starts with this, man. Open up your heart because God is so much more than you relenting when you repent. So Jesus says, okay, now it's my turn to come out now. And as Jesus comes out of the water, Luke makes clear he's praying. The Holy Spirit comes down in a bodily form so that John can get a clear reference. This is your guy. A voice comes from heaven. And this is how we end it. This is my beloved son. This. That tells me he's not speaking to Jesus then. In the other Gospels, you'll see that the Father speaks to Jesus too. But as our King in Matthew, he's telling everyone else, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In whom I'm well pleased. So I have a question for you. See if you can answer this. This is actually a chance for you to say, say, say something. Up to this point, has Jesus done any miracles? Thank you. No. Has he teached any sermons? No. Has he walked on water? No. Has he raised the dead? Has he healed anyone? Has he seemed to have given a tremendous amount to charities? Do we have a record of tremendous good deeds that he's done up to this point? No. So how could the Father be so well pleased? It was in the first statement, is the answer. Because he's a son. Please understand something. You could live a whole life trying to do stuff for God to make him happy, and you already should be if you were actually his child. You see, we don't do stuff to make God happy. We do stuff because he already delights in us. Do you know what it's like to delight in his delight? Zephaniah 3.17. Listen to this. The Lord your God is among you, the mighty one who will save. He will delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And then he'll rejoice over you with singing. Who rejoices over you with singing? Can I just say somebody in love? And my God is in love with you. He doesn't just like you. He doesn't just think you're cool. He's in love with you. And what he really, really wants is for you to grab a hold of the fact that God's not asking for you to be his performing monkey. What God wants is a child. And he's big on adoption. And it doesn't matter how messed up, mucked up, crazy, filthy, dead you are. Because Scripture makes clear we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And only God would adopt a dead child. Because he's the God of life. So it doesn't intimidate him. And what the Father says to Jesus, my prayer is, as we bring this to close and pray now, is that you'll hear the same. Are you his child? 
Ladies, ladies here, ladies here, ladies here. Like, like, why do you call his daughters? Because it's their mindset. A daughter is temporary in a family. Sooner or later, she'll be married off and become a member of another family. That's the mindset. It isn't God being chauvinist. It's God being the opposite. He looks at you too, ladies, and says, you are a permanent member of the family. That's the point. You actually get to be a part of the family business. You don't just sit around. You actually get to grow and be part of what the Father's about. Ladies, welcome to the family. That's why we're all, in a weird way, we're all brothers. Now, please hear me in this. Scripture makes clear we are dead in our trespasses and sin under the control or the guidance of the wicked one. And yet, God so loved us, he sent his son, Jesus the Christ, his only begotten. Begotten means the only one from his gene pool. You know why he's the only begotten? Because everybody else will be adopted. We have two children. One that's biological. She looks like her mother. Praise God for that. She looks like Barbie. Tall, skinny, blonde. And she's one of my two favorite children. The other one, on the other hand, well, she's Chinese. But I love her just as much. I have one only begotten child, but I have two children, and I love them both the same. And to think that God could love me, the Father could love me as much as Jesus, though he's the only begotten. What that proves, by the way, is that Jesus really is God because he's the only one of God's gene pool. Please hear me in this. The moment that I recognize that I need a father, I also have to recognize that comes at a price. And the price is the death of God's only begotten. But God so loved you and he so loved me, he he willingly volunteered this. And Jesus so loves you and so loves me that he willingly volunteered. Because someone had to pay the price for our sins. Enter Jesus at the cross. He dies on the cross to pay the price. And when he resurrected, just like Scripture promised, God gave us the opportunity to not just walk away from the old life, but to embrace a new one adopted by the God of eternity. Do you know what it's like to be loved by a father? I mean, adored by a father. Delighted in by a father. I do. And my heavenly father has never missed a game. He's never missed a thing. And he's always there. And he quiets me with his love in those tumultuous moments. And he rejoices over me with singing. And here's my challenge to you. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the payment for your adoption, I'm going to give you the choice to do so now. I'm not going to make you stand up or shout or any yell anything, but I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with the prayer, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. But if you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and you are adopted, you are a part of God's family, my question is, are you willing to let God reinvent you? To do more than relent, but repent. To say, I'm not going to just hand you my life and say, the parts I don't like, take it like you're the great cosmic rubbish, man. But I'm going to give you all of my life and I need you to reinvent it in whatever way you want. And if it doesn't reconcile, dish it. And if it is something you want to use, then use it for your glory. But that's not for me to choose. That's for you to choose. And the cool part is I genuinely believe what God's going to do here even as we pray is he's going to transform lives in this room. And he's going to take us and make us the people he wants to. Could you imagine the adventure you're going to get on right now? I can. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful text. I thank you that though John was, pretty, was very clear on who he stood against and who stood against him, he was also clear with who he stood with. And I can't even imagine how mind-blown John would have been when he realizes his cousin's the Messiah. But I thank you that you've made that clear. And I thank you, God, that in this room right now, You have people desperate to hear the voice of a father saying, I love you, and that pleases me. So 
So I pray right now first for anyone who's struggling because somehow they're not sure if they've ever said yes to you or maybe they feel like they might have done something as a baby or whatever, but the Scripture makes clear if we're willing to confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. It's pretty evident and that's clear. Beloved, as we pray this prayer right now, listen, and at the end, the reason I'm not actually just having you repeat it is I want you to listen carefully. And if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. What you're saying is, yeah, I agree with that. And here it is. God in heaven, I need you. As a father who loves me and wants me, I come to you broken. I come to you guilty. I come to you needy. But I come now because you're inviting me to come just as I am and hand you the mess I've made of my life. And in handing it to you, I invite you to reinvent me. I believe just like Scripture promised that Jesus, your only begotten Son, died on the cross, volunteered to pay my price so that my sin could be punished without me, the sinner, being punished for it. And just as Scripture promised, He died on that cross so that my sin and the sins of everyone else could be paid in full. Just as He was dead and buried, Scripture had promised that He would rise again on the third day. And when He rose again on the third day, it became evident that laying my life down at the cross is only half the story. At the cross, I lay down my life and the mess I've made of it, but at the resurrection, I see there's a new life now, but I can't have a resurrected life without an old one dying. And He demands to be my Lord, the architect of my reinvention. But He's asking for permission as a gentleman, and for that I say yes. You really want me? You can have me. Father, you really want to adopt me? Have me. Teach me to know your pleasure, your delight. Teach my ears to hear you rejoice with song over me. Teach my heart to fall into you in fearful moments that you would quiet me with your love. And let my heart and soul hear you speak. You are my child now. I love you. And I am well pleased in you. I'm yours now. My life's in your hands. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, I ask you to give a confident Amen. And Lord, now I pray finally for everyone here who's made that confession today and those who have made that confession some other time before that you teach us now, Lord, to walk in your ways and to follow you on the great adventure of watching you transform eternity using us to do so. Thank you for the privilege of being yours. Thank you for your adoptive love. Thank you. Give me a hope and excitement, even for today and what you're going to do. Thank you. As I'm yours, you are mine. May I live a life that reflects that. Now, may I bear the fruits of a life fully handed over to you in repentance. In Jesus' name.